Hello, everybody, and welcome to our podcast. Uh, this is Agustin de la Mora, and I'm so happy that you joined us today, and even happier because on the line with us is a very good friend and a person I met a long time ago when she was like probably six years old or something like that, a long, long time ago in Vegas. And uh, ever since I've seen her blossom into a very uh, important and well-recognized interpreter in our field. So uh, without any further ado, I'll let her introduce herself. Here's my very good friend, Judy Jenner. Hello, everybody, and uh, thank you, Agustin. I'm, I'm blushing. I feel like my mom wrote that or my, my, dad, my dad wrote yeah, that. Yeah, somebody from your family actually. <laughs> yeah, I knew there was some sort of connection there. <laughs> it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I think podcasts are just a wonderful way for us to keep in touch with what's happening in our industry. So I'm super happy to be sharing a little bit about um, what I know uh, or what I don't know, because there's a lot of things I don't know. But as Agustin said, I've been an interpreter for not as long as Agustin. And actually what he forgot to mention is that he was actually the very first person who taught me anything about legal interpreting, which is, um, it feels like a long time ago, but I think it was about 10 years ago. Probably. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty awesome. So that was when I was uh, studying to become certified as a court, as a state certified court interpreter here in Nevada. And I've since uh, become certified in California and also federally. So, so I'm one of the, uh, I'm proud to be part of the elite group of federally certified uh, Spanish court interpreters. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you, you've been very modest. You forgot to tell us that you're an entrepreneurial linguist, that you're a author, you're a, an adjunct professor, so you do it all. Yeah, you know, I think it's very common for us in this industry, for those of us who are as passionate about it as you and I are, to wear many different hats. And I was a translator for a long time before I became an interpreter. I always had so much admiration for interpreters, and I honestly wasn't sure if I could do it. So one day I just said, let me try to take some medical interpretation courses that was before I met you Agustin and I discovered that I had a lot more talent than I thought and then also added interpreting to my skill sets but I'm a classic translator even though by by temperament I'm definitely more of an interpreter and I love sharing what I know and helping teach and sort of guide the next generation of interpreters and translators. I think it's something we need to do more in our country. I think we need to support each other and help each other grow and elevate the profession as a whole. And uh, along those lines, I've been very uh, honored to serve as a volunteer in many, many different <laughs> uh, functions, uh, most importantly, currently as a spokesperson of the American Translators Association. So I represent our association as a volunteer, of course, and I talk a lot to the media, try to rid them of the distinction of them. Well, the misconception that translation and interpreting are the same thing. <laughs> One of these days we'll get them to say it correctly, right? I, I don't know about that. I would say I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I, you know, I, I, I am giving it the good old college effort, yeah. whether it's working. I maybe <laughs> I'll, I'll keep on trying. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, at least, you know, we have made some progress because First, uh, in, in, uh, where I worked in one of the circuits in Florida, uh, they would call us, the, here's a translator, and then we 
got them used to say interpreters. And of course, one of the judges that felt that we were more like an imposition, he <laughs> called us the interrupters instead. <laughs> I've heard that. That is pretty mean. <laughs> but it's so, unfortunately, it's what happens, right? Well, well, we do interrupt it. We say, excuse me, you're on interpreter, whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. But we're just just while trying to do our job, not that's because right. we just enjoy it so much. That's right. That's oh. right. So I, I really wanted to talk to you today because you are my guru, as far as I know, Judy, uh, in, in, in respect of business as an entrepreneur, interpreter, translator, linguist, I always tell people, hey, if you, if you need to know about business and the business of interpretation and translation and how to run your business as a business, as Judy, and uh, I was telling some of my friends, one of the things that I will never forget was hearing you a couple of years ago, maybe more than a couple, talk about how us interpreters and translators had the really bad habit or, of never raising our rates because mm -hmm. we thought, oh my God, they're going to leave me and now I'll have no jobs. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember you saying, well, if you want to make less money every year, go ahead and do that. But everybody else raises their prices. So I know you have a book out. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how did you evolve from translation, interpreting to this business side, which by the way, a lot of us, don't know much about yeah it's a good question and you know we just realized um when i say we i refer to my twin sister and myself i have a twin a, a translating and interpreting twin who that's why our business is named twin translations so we just realized relatively early on that there really wasn't much literature about the, the business side of our profession whether it's translation or interpreting and the reality is most of us who start running our small businesses, we sort of just wing it because many in Europe come from the humanities and have formally studied translation interpreting here in the U.S. It's more from different fields. But I think what most of us have in common is that we don't really have a clue about how to run a business. And how would we, even those who are trained formally at the few universities where you can get full degrees and TNI, they don't really offer a lot of business skills. So we always thought, well, this is really unfair that interpreters and translators are sort of roaming the business world trying to run these small businesses without any skills. And we just recognized sort of a pattern there. Whenever we went to conferences and talked to colleagues, people were always just generally pretty clueless about, about, about the business side. So we thought, well, I actually did go to business school. I have an MBA in marketing and finance. So I figured, well, in, in business school, you don't really learn how to run your own business either, but you do learn a lot of skills that can be applied to the small business setting. So we started writing a blog called Translation Times, where we shared some of these, which I thought were pretty basic business lessons, but turns mm. out a lot of people just hadn't heard them. And Absolutely. Uh, which yeah. is which, you know, both surprised me and made me sort of sad because I want to empower all my colleagues and friends and people I don't know yet. I want everybody to be happy and successful. <laughs> so we right. thought, well, well, let's write this blog. But then the colleagues kept on saying, you should put this into a book form. And we said, no, that just sounds like way too much work, which I can guarantee yeah. you it was. <laughs> I'm sure it was, yes. Uh, but we decided to do it, and it was a true labor of love. It's actually been out for eight years, and you can't believe how many requests we've gotten for a second edition. 
uh, the reality. I can believe it, yeah. <laughs> it's really flattering, but it's also so much work that I, at this point, I just really don't, A, I don't remember how we got it done the first time. I have kind of blocked it out. <laughs> yeah, it's like giving birth, maybe. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's from what I hear, yeah. And so I don't know how I would do it at this point, but it has been, it has had a lot of impact all over the world. It's used at universities from, from Canada to Dubai, and it's just pretty remarkable of uh, it sold thousands and thousands of copies which we didn't really anticipate and it just kind of uh, cemented that belief that we were right that those skills were necessary and universities aren't teaching them so we thought we'd kind of fill that gap with some pretty easy to apply advice and I hope it's working (laughs) at least a bit a little bit of it <laughs> yeah and I, i'm sure it is and and it's interesting because i find some parallels when i started in this business i discovered there was also no training for interpreters exactly i myself got uh just to be interpreters at all i remember being hired because hey i walked for work for berlitz <laughs> that's right i remember that yeah <laughs> i was a berlitz <laughs> teacher and the guy who hired me said well those are very good i don't know exactly what that means but he hired me on the spot <laughs> And the rest, as they say, is, is history. history. <laughs> but but true, true be told, is the first time I went into a court of law to interpret, I really had no clue as to what I was doing. And I was lucky to to have some friends of mine that uh, helped me and, and really took me under their wing and, and taught me the business of interpreting. And, and then I saw the big gap between a bilingual person and then an interpreter. But what's really interesting is that I've been saying that for many years. Well, how can people expect you to be an interpreter just because you're being bilingual? It's like having a driver's license and asking me to drive during the Daytona 500 or something. Mm -hmm, I like that. But funny enough, many of us, I would say a good 90% of the freelance interpreters I know have their own quote-unquote company. Exactly, because you need to. The, the reality mm-hmm. in this country is that there are relatively few in-house positions for mm-hmm. interpreters of any kind, especially for court interpreters. Or just there are proportionally few. So, and that's what I tell my students. Because, as you mentioned, I have the pleasure of being an adjunct at a couple of universities, which is also a big labor of love. Let me tell you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that the pay is nothing to brag about. <laughs> yes, no, nobody does adjunct teaching because the money is good. Actually, mm-hmm. um, I, when I got paid the first time, I couldn't tell if it was by, for that for the week or for the month. That turns, out it, <laughs> turns out it was turns out it was for, for the a month. semester. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, that's not what I expected. I thought it was going to be more than that, but yeah. I've since come to terms with it. <laughs> and, um, and training is absolutely of course crucial for you know for at at all levels for for interpreters and translators but we also have to realize that there will be there'll be training along the way right here in this country we just don't have the setup that you can have a formal degree easily Mm -hmm. Um, but you need to you know you have to take matters into your own hands and I tell my students that all the time you have to find the training the training exists it's not maybe as much as as you'd want it, but um, your organization fills a great gap with the training, by the way. Yeah, we, we do try, but, you know, this comparison is valid for me because then I think, hey, here we are, here I am myself talking about, oh, well, people should be trained before they interpret, and I'm thinking, well, shouldn't we be trained before we open a small business, at least on the basics? And I do see that a lot of us struggle. I 
after after I heard you say that in that, I think it was in an agit conference, I immediately came home and say, wait a minute, let me look. And no lie, I mean, some of the customers I had, I had never raised my prices, not in one year, but in like five years. I am so glad I was able to make an impact on your long-standing business. <laughs> oh my God, yes. And yes. I, I, th- I think it's very true. You have to adjust for inflation at least, you know, and you I have, have to- least, yes. Yeah, if you, if you are an employee, then your boss, even if you do a terrible job at your job, the boss will be like, hey, here's your 3% cost yeah. of living adjustment, even if you're the worst employee on the planet, right? Mm-hmm. But if you work for yourself, you're basically discounting your work by 3% every year or -hmm. whatever inflation happens to be. Also, it depends greatly on where you live um, in terms of what the rate of inflation is. But I try to think as a business person, and if I I don't have a boss who's going to give me that 3%, so I need to put that 3% or whatever it is, I need to increase that with my clients. And I think part of the problem we have, so to say, as interpreters and translators, it's a, it's a, it's a problem of self-confidence. Maybe we don't yeah. really believe that we're worth it. We're always scared. It's almost like we haven't recognized our own value, our own importance yet. And we think that our services are so not important that at the slightest chance of increase of the cost, the clients will run away screaming. But that is yeah. actually not the case. Why would they? They need us. We do a great job. Hopefully yeah. all of us do a great job. And I haven't had one client complain yet that they'll say like, hey, thank you. Duly noted. New rates for 2018. Got it. Yep. They, yep. Do, they do it with their clients. You know, we're a business just like um, any other business. And I think it's time we start behaving as such. Of course, there's lots of other factors that you need to take to have your clients take you seriously, which sometimes I think we do a terrible job at as a profession. And uh, actually that two of them, I always say this, Augustine, whenever I'm talking to students or newcomers, I say one of my very first interpreting uh, instructors, Agustin de la Mora said, <laughs> you know what the two biggest complaints are about court interpreters? Everybody's like, Oh, we don't know. I said, I didn't know either. And Agustin back then said, it's that they're late and they don't interpret. <laughs> and I remember thinking, that's terrible. <laughs> that That is just really absolutely terrible. But now, more than a decade later, I can absolutely corroborate that. That is oftentimes the case. So we are our, our own worst enemies sometimes. I say that with a lot of tough love, right? We mm-hmm. Because the business aspect, you can only implement being a business and demanding good rates and good working conditions. You can only demand that if you if you fulfill the other side of the equation, which is also behaving like a professional business and not somebody who does interpreting on the side and is running 15 minutes late because that's just not acceptable. So that's right. that's my little uh, speech on that. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a great segue to talk about what do you think in order to have a successful business, what are your keys to success? I'm going to say one of them is definitely be on time and be professional. <laughs> exactly. And um, so I'll focus on the interpreting side because that is obviously so much that's pretty much exclusively in person. But I think being on time is I never thought that this would be a lesson I'd have to highlight. Um, and I think it is sort of concerning in general that it has to be mentioned. But you'd be surprised how many of your colleagues you can outperform by being early or being on time. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is something that's very easily remedied. Uh, you 
you, you could just be on time. And I've actually heard of interpreters who are late for their own exams, their own certification. Oh, yes. <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, I just don't, my sympathy for this is quite limited, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. because these are problems that you can solve. You can uh, you Google map it, how far it is from your house, and you can maybe go there the day before. But so the, the main thing, one of the main ingredients is, yes, being on time and being professionally dressed, um, especially for court. And as a woman and a supporter of women in the workforce, um, and as a feminist, it really pains me to say that it is usually women who are not dressed appropriately. I think I can, without reservation, say that unfortunately it is mostly the woman, the women. If somebody's mm -hmm. not dressed professionally, it mm -hmm. does tend to be too tight, too short, mm -hmm. too revealing, mm -hmm. sort of sort of the kind of topic you don't ever want to discuss with anybody. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's, I know. So, it's uncomfortable, right? And I, it is, it is. It, and, believe me, I, you know, I work <laughs> in, a, in a department in Orlando where everybody was female except for me. I <laughs> see, so you know well what that feels like. Yeah, and that was tough because sometimes, you know, my own employees would show up with these miniskirts because, hey, I'm going out after work, so why not just have the same outfit? <laughs> because it's tough to have the conversation it is so tough and just a, you know story from my own interpreting world i mean i'm in the position that i oftentimes outsource to other interpreters i hire interpreters for small conferences or even just to um, do assignments for me as my business has grown and there are some really outstanding interpreters that i, I just can't hire them i can't send them to those law firms dressed like that I just mm -hmm. can't do it. And it's mm -hmm. not a conversation I want to have. So instead of having that conversation, I just don't retain them, which is which is a pity, right? Because part of you wants to say, okay, can we have this conversation? But it's such a personal conversation. It is. Um, but it, it's a huge ingredient. So my, my number one advice is always, when you're in doubt, you should wear a suit. You, <laughs> think, you think you're going to be hot? Nimodo, too bad. You suck That's it up. Fun. You think yeah. it's going to be miserable in the car. It will be miserable. Maybe you can take your jacket off in the car and wear like a tank top underneath. I don't care what you need to do to accomplish this. Everybody has the same problems. I live in Las Vegas where it's currently 113 mm -hmm. and I still somehow manage to wear a suit. So if you ever wonder, is this too tight, too short? Is it appropriate? The answer is your first instinct is probably correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you should, you should wear something else um and in terms of professionalism or just ingredients for success beyond being on time and being professional i think you have to understand that you're essentially a service provider who's there to solve a problem that a client has and that's the problem of language right so you're there to make things easier not harder um you know i think you should uh, demand good working conditions or at least decent working conditions because the reality is that the working conditions that we want aren't always possible which is of course very frustrating but that's sometimes just the situation that you're in and you need to make things as easy on the client as possible while still mm -hmm. being able to do your job and i think sometimes there's sort of a fine line between mm -hmm. the complaining interpreter and interpreter who just can't hear and and ergo can't interpret right so Think of yourself as a business. Think of yourself as a service provider. And there are so many other factors. I mean, I could, uh, we could be talking about this till the year 2020, but mm -hmm. just having a good reputation in the industry, contributing to the industry, 
um, being careful what, what you put online, what you say online, what you mm -hmm. post, uh, thinking about how your work as a court interpreter could potentially be affected by things mm -hmm. that you do or don't do online. I think that's something that, that is, we forget. <laughs> yeah, that, that is so true. I mean, everybody knows if you're on Facebook or or Snapchat or whatever you're doing and you're a professional interpreter, you're always th you, you should always be aware that maybe somebody will see that. And even, exactly. even if you think, well, that's my personal thing, you're always a business. So is that one of the things that we have to keep in mind if we're going to be a business? You're think, first and foremost a business. I think so. It's the difference between running a small business that you own or working for a big company. Let's say if you work for Microsoft and you go out and you have too much to drink one day and a bunch of pictures end up on Facebook, I don't think anybody's going to say Microsoft is a bad company because you were drinking too much. Because you personally, Fulanito or whatever, Jane Doe, were drinking too much. That's not going to happen. People will say Microsoft is a bad company because our software isn't very good, but <laughs> that's a different exactly. subject. But if you as, you know, owner of twin translations, if I go out and get drunk and there's pictures that end up on Facebook, people will, will equate me with twin translations and because I am twin translation. So it's right. kind of hard to separate those things. And, um, you know, we, we forget how public lives are online and mm -hmm. the first thing that people do is they, they Google you. I mean, if I were yeah. looking to hire somebody and I Googled my pool guy, for Christ's sake, you know, I mean, <laughs> just, we, to <laughs> just to be sure that he had a license, you know, mm -hmm. and he does and it's all good. So, yeah, be careful what, what you do both online and also in your professional interactions with others. I think I, I come back to this point that sometimes we are our own worst enemies and mm -hmm. I, I think we need a little bit more solidarity with each other, with the yeah. interpreting community at large. I think I've seen too much bad behavior in terms of interpreters bad-mouthing other interpreters, trying to steal yeah. clients. I think in both the short and the long run, that's not very helpful for our profession, right? Um, gossiping right. about each other doesn't really add anything. <laughs> it just makes it sound kind of petty with the clients, right? If you're telling this one attorney that you saw this other interpreter doing this and this. I don't right. I don't think that's particularly useful. I don't think it's collegial. I don't think it's appropriate. So I think you also need to work a little bit on your reputation. You want to be right. sort of the person right. that people come to and say, hey, I have a question for you. Can you help me with this terminology? You don't want to be the person who has a reputation that he or she is not very friendly and is not helping others we are all in this profession together and we can always wish and hope that it gets strengthened from the outside but the reality is if we want to strengthen our profession we have to do it from the inside and that means all of us and that means not waiting for Najit or for the ata to come down with sort of a magic wand right make it all better right and you know from here i wanted to to get down to business as they say and, uh, <laughs> I would like you to tell me, first of all, how do you know, how do you create a price for what you do? Because it seems to me that most interpreters out there just go and say, well, how much is Billy charging? How much is Johnny charging? Oh, well, they're not charge the same or $5 more or $5 less. Is there a better way to decide how much you charge for your services? Well, there is this wonderful spreadsheet that I'll, that I'll share with you and your listeners that was developed by the Spanish Association of Translators and Interpreters, ACETRA. 
it was meant uh, more to arrive at your per word price for translation, but I bet you can also modify it to arrive at the cost of interpreting or the, the professional fee, as Tony Rosado likes to say for for professional interpreting services. But the reality is when, when I started out as a court interpreter, the, the rates for the courts, of course, are set. There's nothing you can do about the, right. the rates for court. You basically take it or leave it. And uh, for some courts, I've decided to not take it because I, I just don't think it's a fair price. But on the private market, the reality is that I did also base my price largely on what others were charging because unfortunately in certain markets the the clients get used to a certain price mm -hmm. range at least let's say within 10 20 percent right and then if you yeah. come up with something completely different they'll say well john charges your rate minus 20 and then it is a difficult argument to present for somebody who doesn't know a lot about interpreting that skill levels are different and i never want to you know diminish my my colleagues sort of accomplishments but i do charge more than most interpreters because I'm one of the few federally certified interpreters in this in this market. There's only mm -hmm. three of us here in Las Vegas. So mm -hmm. when when some attorney says, well, you know, this other person charges less, I say, well, I am not only master level certified because here in Nevada we've got two state levels, but I also have the federal certification. So I think that's fair, but the reality is you can try to charge whatever you think the market can bear. And gotcha. in, in other markets, when I travel, because I do have the chance to travel a bit. So when I go to New York, I do charge a higher rate for New York, which I think is sort of in line with what other interpreters at sort of my skill level charge. Mm -hmm. But I think in general, I think we all need to think about the fee that we charge as something that needs to be a number that we can live with and live mm -hmm. on. So mm -hmm. if you decide to have a certain fee and then you constantly complain about it, I don't think that's very useful. The, the, right. the, you can't really change what other people do, but you can change what you do. So if you don't like the number, maybe you need to come up with a different number and see mm -hmm. if the market can bear it. And that involves some, some willingness to take some risk. If you're completely risk averse, and I tell that to my students, you probably shouldn't run your own small business because there, there is risk. And now, you know, Absolutely. Yeah, there's some of the risk you can mitigate, some of it you can't. And actually, the other day, I sort of purposely tried to price myself out of some interpreting assignment. And, and really, <laughs> I did get, I mean, it was, it was an interesting lesson in mm -hmm. how much is possible, right? I just yeah. really didn't want to do this. This is a... Uh, online, remote, complicated, difficult time slots, multiple languages. I just thought, well, I don't know if this is worth the trouble, but let's let's throw a higher number at it and, and see what happens. And that's, of course, completely legitimate. You're free to charge clients different price points. That's another point I want to make that so often colleagues say, well, I can't charge client X this rate and charge client Y this rate. I'm like, why not? Every business on the planet does it. And we, yeah. we don't think about it. But let's say you go to, to dinner at your favorite restaurant. And if you'd arrived an hour earlier and you'd sat at the bar, then you've gotten the same food 
at like 50% off or at least part mm-hmm. of that same food just yeah. because you're sitting, you know, a few yards away and you're an hour early. It's called happy hour. See, there's That's a right. theme theme here with uh with food for, for, for me yeah. <laughs> uh, and pretty much every other business does it too the the plane tickets are different prices pretty much for oh absolutely <laughs> and hotels you, and you know, yeah if you yeah. go skiing on a friday it's gonna be more expensive than if you go skiing on a on a wednesday it's, it's just that the price differentiation or price discrimination or whatever you want to call it is a very common and very much allowed business practice so i don't think you have to charge everybody the same thing i don't think you should some the reality is some clients are more work than others or may sort of you know require more hands-on or more just or hand-holding hand-holding exactly and yeah yeah. i I hear that attorneys do it too i i retained an attorney to do some stuff for me a few years ago and he said well i've got three different rates i've got the regular rate then I've got the nice people rate, and then I got the the jerk rate. He used a different word than jerk, but you can. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I I said, oh, which radar am I getting? And he said, well, the nice people rate, of course. But I have no idea if I am getting the nice person rate or not. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't have the foggiest idea. But I think we have to develop some more confidence to say, my uh, there's a range. Maybe you charge more for trials than you charge for the position. Maybe if you do an IME, uh, independent medical examination, maybe you have a three-hour minimum. And for the positions, you have a four-hour minimum. I don't know. I think it's all very... Yeah. I, I like that, that, that you, you are empowering people to think exactly that because I, I, I am certain that many of us had this idea of, oh, no, I charge 70 bucks, that's it. 70 right. bucks is what I charge. Two-hour minimum, that's what I charge. Well, you know, I guess there's a lot of factors that would... Uh, and make a difference if if a guy is giving you a hundred hours a month exactly. maybe he can get a better price than the guy who calls you every three months sure and i think you have to show some flexibility <laughs> too with a client i i try to say stay away from from discounts unless somebody's asking for it because you'd be surprised how oftentimes <laughs> colleagues will volunteer a discount <laughs> we haven't even asked for it <laughs> <laughs> here's a special rate for you. I'm like, okay. And I, uh, I've seen attorneys tell me that too. They all say, I called this uh, interpreter and she said, it's X an hour. But then she said, hey, for you, I'll knock it down 20%. And he hadn't even asked yet. I think that's um, negotiating against yourself, I think is a bad business strategy. It shows uh, that you're not very confident in your own rates and you need to develop some sort of confidence. You have to see like, say like, this is the number and say it with conviction, you know, and I, I get it that sometimes people will want to negotiate. I mean, I grew up in Mexico city. I love to negotiate when I negotiated with my necessary. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I negotiated with my CPA about my taxes the other day. Mm -hmm. She said, it's X. I said, can we do Y? She's like, Mm -hmm. absolutely not. Don't ask again. I said, okay. (laughs) I I, I just, uh, I was, she wasn't offended. I wasn't offended. But you have to understand that there's always some sort of flexibility. Like you say, if somebody's going to give you 100 hours a month, uh, you could maybe think about some special pricing. But I would let the client prove that they're actually going to call you for 100 hours a month. Because I've heard that very often. We'll use you a lot. I said, well, why don't we get to 30 hours a month and then I'll give you a discount. I don't like to give people discounts on the promise of potential future revenue. Yeah, I love what you said that we do negotiate against ourselves, you know, even mm-hmm. I remember at the very beginning, I would say, 
And people would ask me, how much do you charge for, you know, a day of training? Uh, $500, just to throw a number. And, mm-hmm. and the person would be silent for more than two minutes. Okay, 400 <laughs> And it's just because they were drinking water or something that they didn't answer right away. And I was panicking. So. <laughs> exactly. You get nervous. And I think that's very normal to have some sort of anxiety. The reality is negotiating professional fees is hard. It's scary. We want people to say yes. And there is some hard work in learning how to do this and to stay sort of calm and collected. I don't always do it perfectly well either, of course. Of course, I've got a lot of lot of things to learn. Um, but I think you also have to stand up for, for yourself as much as you can. And um, I have the same sort of uh, doubts and fears that everybody else does, right? That, oh, if I don't get this client, I'll never get another client, right? right <laughs> as, as, right. as irrational as that is. I, I try to teach my tell myself I do have plenty of business um, luckily I've built it but I've also turned down a lot of business and um, there's a lot of clients that I don't get because I've priced myself out of the market and I'm and I'm okay with that I right. think we need to insist on charging professional fees for our professional services if we want to be seen as a professional service we have to sort of right. demand that the rates that come with it because the reality is people do respect you more for better or for worse if you charge higher fees. That's just the way it is. I don't know why, but that's that's why people like Porsches, right? Right. I was gonna. I was thinking about that. That people are still buying the high-end cars and paying high-end uh, attorneys, even though that they're not necessarily statistically any better than the guy that charges less. Exactly. So, since you are the guru of businesses for us, <laughs> what are the typical questions you hear from? from people that want to improve their business as, as translators or interpreters? <clears throat> that's, a, that's a super good question, I was seeing. I'm glad you're asking it. And I'm, some of them, there's themes, right? I can kind of group them. But one of the more interesting ones is basically people being reluctant to um, market themselves. So they're, they'll, they'll argue with me saying, I don't think I really need a website. I'd be like, okay, well, I think you do need a website, but if, but if you don't want, if you don't want to do it, nobody's pointing a gun to your head. And then they, they ask me sort of the questions like, um, how can I measure who's finding me online? And it, it is difficult to measure, right? Unless you have some sort of code that you give people and say, hey, mention that you saw my website and I'll give you a discount or whatever. It's hard to measure, but you also can't measure what doesn't happen. You don't know how many people would have found you if you did have a website. So I just try to tell people, like, look, if you want to ha- run a business in the 21st century, you need to have a website. I don't see how you could not have a website. I, I'm really trying to think of a scenario where you don't need a website and I can't quite come up with it. Maybe you, you work in a market that's so small that everybody knows you, but why would you not go into different markets, right? The web is universal and you could open so many doors. So sometimes I... I feel like there's a reluctance of people to do online anything, starting with a website. But I always say that having a business without a website is like not having had a phone in the previous century, right? And yeah. <laughs> I mean, having grown up in Mexico, my phone didn't always work, so we just have the boyfriend call the the neighbor, right? So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you want the equivalent <laughs> of the '80s calling the neighbor for your website that's for your right. business? I mean, that just sounds that kind of sounds kind of silly. So, mm-hmm. that's a huge reluctance I see. And the and the other big question is, people just don't know where to start. They say, I I have no idea. I want to grow my business, but I don't have any idea how to do it. 
And to which I said, well, there are some great books on that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And let me, uh, let me see. Maybe the <laughs> entrepreneurial linguist would be a good one to start with, huh? Yeah, you know, I do think that a lot of what you need and uh, is there, and especially on the translation side, there's other other great books, especially Corinne McKay, the current president of the ATA, and a dear friend of mine wrote pretty much the Bible for freelance translation. It's called How to Succeed as a Freelance translator and it pretty much tells you most of what you need mm -hmm. uh, the other thing i see is i see an incredible reluctance with technology which i find very very surprising on the interpreting side uh, because our industry is changing right and i get a lot of questions from students if a newcomer saying what are sort of the new trends and i say well the new trends are remote simultaneous, more video, changing technologies, whether they're good or bad, they work or they don't work, that's a different subject. But the reality mm -hmm. is they're coming and so many people say, oh no, I just, uh, if my son isn't home or my ex-husband or my son's sister's cousin, brother-in-law, then I don't know how to do it. And right. to which I said, well, if you want to be in this industry, this is the reality of this industry. Ask yourself that question. Can you compete with the skills that you have now? If you don't think you can, how are you going to acquire those skills to stay competitive? Or are you just going to stick your head in the sand and pretend that remote anything isn't happening? Yeah. I think you have to take control of what you can control, which is your own skills. You can't control what the market does, but you can control of how you fit into it. So those are some of the big topics that I see. General scared, uh, scaredness of technology, business topics, not knowing where to start. And, and uh, I think the other big issue is the one I've already mentioned is the lack of self-confidence. I have students telling me, oh, I don't think, I don't know. I'm just, I don't think I can do it. And I say, well, if you don't think you can do it, <laughs> nobody else is going to think you can do it either. Right. So mm -hmm. that's, and I wish I could have this again, this sort of magic wand that I wave over everybody's head. And I say, here, there you go. Boom. Here's your instant sort of self-confidence, but uh, it doesn't happen like that. You have to talk yourself into it. That's true. Uh, any last advice for uh, our listeners as far as I want to, uh, I want in. What's the first thing you you want to have a website? You want? How about negotiating with people uh, for for the job? I mean, how do you go get the jobs? Do you go knock on doors? What was your strategy? Oh, there's so many, and that's that's probably a two-hour answer. But the the five-minute answer is that mm. you have to do a variety of things that are online and offline. Uh, for the digital folks like myself, when we say offline, that basically just means anything that's not online. So it could be in person, it could be you buy a billboard or whatever. But the reality for interpreters, if you are active in the market in which you live, is that you have to go out and meet some people, right? It's unfortunately in, in a way like politics, right? The more people know that you exist, the more likely it is that you get votes or clients in this case. So if, mm -hmm. if you just don't feel super comfortable going to networking meetings, that's perfectly fine. But then you have to have some other strategy to make up with it. I actually do pretty frequently go to meetings from the, from the bar association and from some, I actually go sometimes to professional development events for lawyers for the Nevada bar, because you know, I can pay my 40 bucks and I may learn something. And I'll, 
I'll definitely be the only interpreter there for sure. Um, so you have to put yourself out there. You have to go where the clients are. I don't think there's a lot of value in doing cold calling or cold knocking on doors. Mm -hmm. There mm -hmm. is a lot to be said for word of mouth. If you're good at what you do and you go to the positions, you should give everybody your business card and it should be a nice, well-designed business card. It shouldn't be one of those free business cards where it says on the back, hey, get your free business cards on Vistaprint. Mm -hmm, <laughs> You'd mm -hmm. be surprised how many of those I get. Um, and so you have to have some sort of combination of online and offline, right? I don't, I'd, I'd love to say that I had some sort of grand strategy when I first started out. I did have some strategic goals when I first started interpreting. I said, hey, I'm going to go to so many in-person meetings a month where I know there will be lawyers there. So I did, I did stick to that. I didn't have a more sort of complex grid of saying, okay, I expect to accomplish this and this, but I think you have to be realistic in your ambition as well. When you're first starting out, I don't know if it's realistic to say, I am a new interpreter in the Miami market and I want to acquire 10 new law firms in the first month. I think, mm -hmm. I don't think, that's realistic. So, so set yourself up for some realistic goals and also be, be humble about it. That if you're just starting out, maybe you've just become certified, you have a lot to learn, right? Um, we, we forget that this is a very humbling profession. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very humbling to me. There is, um, I had the chance to interpret a Lions International yesterday, this uh, sort of big international organization, like Rotary Club, very mm -hmm. big international organization. And there's uh, a lot of terms that I hadn't known before and that I looked up on when I had the PowerPoints and I was like, wow, this is so interesting. You have so much to learn. So you have to, yeah. I think, also be, be humble and, and, ex and don't expect that you can have a great business overnight. And I think the most important thing is that, of course, you have to be good at what you do. If all your business is all fluff and uh, smoke and mirrors and you've got an amazing website and you have all these elements, but you're not good at what you actually do. If you're just not a good interpreter, the best website in the world is not going to cut it, right? So first and foremost, you have to always keep on working on your skills, right? If I have an hour in my day and I can I say, I can either update my website right now or I can do a quick interpreting practice assignment, which I do all the time. I just interpret videos from SpeechPool. I'll probably choose the interpreting practice because that is ultimately what makes me have the business that I have. It's my skills. It's not so much the website. It's, it's the skills. So I think that's important too. All right. Well, Judy, I know you have things to do, and I, I, I can't thank you enough for participating with us today. Uh, I, you just gave me such an inspiration that I'm going to acquire another entrepreneurial linguistic book and send it to one of our listeners. We'll find a way to do a contest or something. Oh, that sounds lovely. Thank and you so much. We will, we will do that because I think uh, we need to share, as you said, and, and give back to uh, the community whichever way we can. So I appreciate your time and, and your, your expertise. And I hope this is not the last time we, we chat about something like this. I'd love to do it again. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And hopefully we'll see each other at a conference very soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Judy. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.